Today on the show, we have Kate Grinling. She chats with us about the ups and downs of producing an independent project. The La Quinta Inn, and yeah. then there was that lunch that my friendly <laughs> friend... I wouldn't call it a lunch. No, it no, was it wasn't. Lunch. It and was, we ate the cookies. It was jail food. Like, maybe a step below. She also shares valuable advice for young producers. Editing and graphic design. Those are going to be the two things that people need to learn because it's what we call a predator. You have to be able to produce and edit. So producer plus editor, predator. Media on the Radio is a podcast that features conversations with media professionals. Everyone from creators of media to those who do the marketing and distribution. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening. I had no thought about doing TV. I wanted to be a lawyer, and I always had a passion for writing. My dad was a writer. Um, I did write for the local uh, college newspaper, and I wrote a lot about women's rights and about uh, concerts. I reviewed music. An article I had written, which was based off my thesis, was picked up by a USA Today editor, and he came down and interviewed me. And that was like a huge boost in my confidence for my writing. So I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And his wife was a reporter for ABC News, Good Morning America, the Washington Bureau. And I ended up getting an internship there, and I was writing for the political page. So they'd send me out with my notebook and my recorder, and I would go to Capitol Hill and talk to Senator Lindsey Graham about S-chip legislation and then come back and write my little article and it would get posted on the website and I was a big deal in my mind. Um, But I still got coffee and wore suits that didn't fit me. But basically, you have to be really, really good to be a reporter and be on your own. And at 20, um, I was not qualified. What I felt I could be good at was being a production assistant in TV and I kept getting picked up for these shoots they would go on out of the Good Morning America office in Washington and and that's kind of how I ended up in TV and since then the writing has been slacking. (laughs) That's me too. I haven't I haven't written anything in like seven years. Exactly (laughs) and there's there's days where you're like oh I want to be around people but most of the time I'm like it would be nice never to get out of my pajamas. <laughs> it would be nice. I wouldn't, I wouldn't complain so much. I would probably eat a lot more often. That's interesting that you want to be a why, why a lawyer? What was it? Well, I always was told from the time I could understand what other people were saying that I would either be a used car salesman or a lawyer because I could talk really fast and I was full of bullshit. So my parents were like, she'll be either one, and they were hoping for the lawyer. And while I was in college, I actually took my LSATs. So I got ready to apply. I took my LSATs, um, started like looking at schools, um, applying to schools. It, if it just, it just, I don't know. It just it was like I got this internship in TV and all of a sudden like getting to meet celebrities on Good Morning America seemed like way cooler than going to school for another three years. So I went with a TV job and uh, I always told myself I'd go back, but your LSATs are only eligible for five years. So I told myself five years you know, kind of messing around on TV, which I didn't think was going to be anything. And then I'd have to go to law school because I was never, ever, ever going to retake the LSAT. So <laughs> I was like, if I don't do it within this five, five-year window, it's probably never going to happen. Um, and it didn't. What brought you to Arlington Independent Media, which is where we're at now? You served, at, and that's where we met. You came in as an intern, which what I remember from you coming as an, as an intern, you had already graduated college. You were basically like, I want to get into media. I'll come in every day and work for you guys, but you have to teach me stuff. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. And that was basically the agreement. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got to take your classes for free. That's what I was like. I had just finished two years in Colorado as a ski bomb teaching skiing. And I did I did work um, like in TV there. I worked for the local station. But all the skills I had in TV were surrounded by my ability to convince people I was better at my job than I actually was. And it was just talking. So it was just the producing stuff. Like, I didn't know how to edit. I didn't even know how to turn on a camera. You know what I mean? So like, I had none of the technical skills that a lot of people in TV today have to have, because there's no such thing as now very specialized jobs. Everyone can do everything, especially as a producer. And that was one thing that really hurt me. Well, I realized it was going to hurt me because people wanted to give me opportunities in Colorado, but it was like working the live show. I, I don't know how to work a switchboard. It was working um, editing or camera or and things where I just didn't have these skills. And so when I found out about um, AIM, I was like, okay, they have classes. I have nothing left from teaching skiing in Colorado. <laughs> so... <laughs> I will work for them for free, and they'll teach me the skills I don't have. And it worked out. It worked out great. I remember you were going also going out on dates so that you can you didn't have to spend money on food. Yeah, so I was really poor, and I had this idea that I would blog about Match.com, and I would keep a spreadsheet of um, how many meals I could get for free if I kept going out on these like dates I got online. Um, but that didn't work out. <laughs> I had to move back home to my parents' basement. Catch, catches up with you after a while. <laughs> so you and I were just talking about what year I came here. So it was 2010, um, and I think that says a lot. Or I mean, I don't know. I would I would assume that there are people who feel like I do about AIM. It's um, it's been five years, and I still call you every time I'm in town. You know, I had a really really great experience here. You know, and I walking in today I saw Jackie on the street and gave her a huge hug and she recognized me and that's that's not that common for you to have people you work with as an intern that you're like okay hey what do you think about this five years later and let's talk about this and you know I want to see you when I'm in town so what I remember is that everyone here wanted to see me do well and it was very very supportive and in tv the longer you're in it the more you know that that isn't real life um <laughs> people in tv are ruthless and it is really special and something of you know to be valued when you find people who are like, hey, let's collaborate, let's let's help you get um, to where you want to go, and you know, and not really ask anything for a return because that's what AIM is, you know, it it asks you to come into the class and it's going to give you this education that you can't get anywhere else for the cost that you get it here, and all you have to do is help out on other people's projects, and it's like, well, that still is a selfless thing because then you meet people. In who are doing the same thing you do. You meet all these like-minded people, and that's that's how you start your networking. That's how you learn, like, okay, this is really uncomfortable. I have to go help this person on their project, and I don't know what I'm doing, but you start to learn to talk to complete strangers and figure out how you fit and how you can add value, and that's still what I have to do today <laughs> in meetings. <laughs> that, that's interesting because, I, well, that's one, one of the things I find really amazing about the network here and that, you know, projects are kind of open and people are interested in getting input and collaboration and and you know that what i've found over the over the years of working here is that we find out that people collaborate outside of here that met here and they develop these whole groups of people that we kind of initiated but we had but spun off into something bigger what i remember i think it was it 2012 that we went to dallas yeah so i remember you at kind of the tail end of or it was 
you had finished your internship and come back and had reached out to both uh, Chris Peasy and myself and said, I want to go shoot this documentary in Dallas. Uh, you know, you, your family or your grandfather is a pretty big deal. And you wanted to make a documentary about. I came to you and Chris and told you that I wanted to make a documentary about my grandpa. And he is the man in the white Stetson and white suit handcuffed to Oswald when he is shot by Jack Ruby in the Dallas courthouse basement. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was the man that killed Kennedy. And that picture captured by Bob Jackson is a Pulitzer Prize winning photo that's known throughout the world. And you invited us to come along. And it was the idea of well, you'll cover our hotel and and expenses and we'll come for the journey. What do well, you remember about that, well, that I, long weekend? <laughs> well, I, I remember a lot more than that. I remember coming in and saying, hey, I have this idea. And just like you said, is how I set it up. And we sat down and I think we had like an hour set aside to, to talk about it. And <laughs> Chris looked at me and was like, so how do you see the story unfolding? And I was like, I literally just told you everything I know. <laughs> that I want to do a documentary on my grandpa. That's like as far as I got. <laughs> and you kind of were like, well, are you going to be in it? Like, is it your voice? Is it, you know, his whole life? And I'm like, I, I told you as much as I know. <laughs> like, We're just going to take a camera and follow him around. Yeah. And it was you two who were like, okay, well, that's not exactly how you do it. <laughs> um, so let's work through it. And, you know, I had all my spreadsheets and like of characters. So it's like, and that's kind of how I still am today. Um, I'm not really a visionary when it comes to what's the finished project going to look like. Um, it's more of like, I've got all these pieces and they must fit together somehow. So let's build a team that can collaborate and figure out how we're going to make all these pieces that like obviously seem connected and seem compelling on their own fit together in one story. And that's kind of what you and Chris did along with all the technical stuff. Cause as I mentioned a minute before, I don't do that. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a process of, you know, realizing what you're bringing to the table and how much you don't know and where to even begin. Because I think for a lot of people, um, even for me today, knowing where to begin is the hardest part. Um, and if you have a team, it's one of those things where it's like, it's a lot easier to take that first step. Um, and it's a lot easier to fail too, because if you kind of fail, you kind of fail together. Or at least it doesn't feel like it so much. From from my experience doing documentary work, one thing I learned really quickly was you shouldn't just go in and just kind of organically kind of play around and, and you know, let's see where this goes because you miss a lot of opportunities right off the bat if you say, you know, you do this interview just with an audio recorder and then they say something that they're never going to say again. That's just, you can't ever capture it like that again. And so it's, to your credit, you went in with all guns blazing with all that you could or all that you had access to, which I think is the is in a sense the right approach if you know that you're going to do this project no matter what and you know that you're going to finish it. That's another thing that, that I keyed in on is that, and that's what ends up now making my decision whether I'm going to collaborate with somebody or not. I can see in their eye they're looking through me and saying, I don't care if you help me or not, because I'm going to do this. That is what actually brings people in. For me, I think it's probably the same feeling. But the way I identify it is, I can't not do this. You know, I, I just can't go one more day 
without doing something. And with you and Chris, it was, it was just, it was just very supportive and very like, okay, let's figure this out. And, you know, it was so not glamorous. I think we got there and there was cockroaches in the hotel the first night. And then there the was La Quinta Inn. The La Quinta Inn. And then there was that lunch that my friendly, friend, <laughs> that my friendly family friend. I wouldn't call it a lunch. No, it no, was it wasn't. It was, we ate the cookies. It was pimento <laughs> cheese on two slices of cold white bread. And it was like, and um, baked beans. And mm-hmm. it was, I mean, it was jail food. Like, maybe a step below. All the footage that we shot that weekend became kind of your research. Your research interviews and, and your footage that you used to then pitch the, the, the next phase of the documentary. So the footage that we shot didn't end up being edited into the final piece. But can you talk a little bit about that process? Because you took what we shot, pitched it to Discovery, and ended up making a bigger better project can you, can you sure talk about, so about one that? of my other favorite memories and it goes ties in directly with what you just said about you need to go in prepared um and not just having a voice recorder was we knew going in that we needed the interview with paul mccarran that he was a crucial piece to this story and that we had a very very small window to capture it we couldn't go to his house he had to be escorted by you know those two younger i mean they're 45 year olds that were with him to make sure we weren't you know some strangers and we're sitting there and he tells us that losing Oswald and the scorn that was befallen on uh, Dallas uh, created a lot of PTSD amongst the cops and that and he had just come from the Korean War and it was he said it was very much the same that people didn't want to talk about it because they felt so guilty and I remember looking at you and Chris and Yuda and thinking Okay, there's 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 a lot here, and it was just that one soundbite, and it was motivation like that. You know, other quotes that we got, other interviews that we got, these soundbites that I was like, there is a much larger story here than I imagined before I got here, and so it was taking those pieces um, and figuring out how to uh, tell the story of Dallas from the eyes of the DPD about what it was like to lose Oswald. And lose, for them, lose Oswald, but for the whole country to lose JFK. What ended up developing out of that? I went into the project with you and Chris and Yuda thinking it was going to be more focused on my grandpa. But what came out of it was that there was this whole story about Dallas and the Dallas DPD and what they went through and their side of things. And that was, that was definitely a, a change from what I initially started. I got really lucky in the fact that there was something bigger there. But all the stories, you have to remember, for the JFK assassination, you've got the Secret Service, CIA, FBI, everyone's involved, right? And they all have perspectives of what happened. And what I found after shooting what we shot was that most of the coverage was told from the point of view of all of them or the Kennedys or conspiracy theorists. It was not told from the angle of the Dallas Police Department. And that was our hook, line, and sinker. Having that, having access to people who had never spoken before, because we had Hugh Ainsworth, but so did everyone else, you know, but we had people like Paul McCarran and Jim Yule, people who I only know because of my grandpa's connection that others hadn't bothered to enlist in their storytelling. So, you know, had we not gone to Dallas that first time, I would have never had the relationships with those people or the background on those people or the trust of those people to say, 
you know, because there was a time when I had to say, don't talk to anyone else. And they were like, yeah, we won't, you know, because it was competitive. Mm-hmm. It was the 50th anniversary was coming up. Mm-hmm. Everyone was looking for the scoop. Can you talk about navigating those waters of, of getting a documentary produced at, at that level through a, a big organization like Discovery? Oh, you know, probably don't have enough time and neither do your listeners. <laughs> um, sure. But it's, no, I mean, I mean that as a joke only because it's it's better told over a beer because it's, it's tough. It's really hard and it weighs on you and it's emotionally exhausting. I didn't know exactly what I was doing and that left me open for a lot of mistakes and it also left me kind of vulnerable to people who knew, people, frankly, people knew I probably had something and knew like my arms could be twisted one way or the other. It was my first time producing something on that scale. So I wasn't going to get the credits I was I wanted. I wasn't going to get the money I wanted. I wasn't going to get have the the voice that I wanted to have necessarily. And navigating like who was the right fit and who could I put my trust in. And and because frankly, like I will admit, I needed the help. I wasn't qualified. So it was finding the people that I could trust, knowing that I was going to be giving over something that was extremely personal to me. I was still going to be very involved in the day-to-day, but I wasn't going to have the final say, and certainly my vote was going to go up against other people. Well, it's, it's also hard to manage because the reality is also it's, it's, your, it's your grandfather. It's your personal story. It's your, it's your family. And there is, there is a, a certain protection that you, want to, that you want to have over the story, over how it comes out. And I think it's, I'm of the mindset that it's amazing that anything gets made because of how many, many pitfalls there are, even if you know what you're doing and if you've done it for 15, 20 years. And so I think somebody described it as a creative producer is, is pushing the boulder up the mountain. (laughs) That's the process. That's just the literal process. So you have to kind of be comfortable with that. You do, and it's also like kind of like falling, you know, backwards, blindfolded, or with your eyes closed, and just kept trusting who's going to be down there to catch you. But the the process that I went through, like the literal process, is uh, I I wrote up a treatment, I cut a sizzle, so it was all the like the highlights of the interviews that we shot, and then I showed as many people as possible and got all their feedback, made tweaks, made tweaks again. Then after it was at a stage where I could stop editing both of those, uh, the written treatment and the visual treatment, I started asking for interviews with people at all different stations and at or all different networks and all different levels. Um, and I showed it and I sent it to as many people as possible. And you ask for a lot of favors. You know, you're like, can you introduce me to anyone you know? And then I'd go on interviews and I'd try to pitch it. You would get turned down or you wouldn't get emails answered and sometimes you would and then from there, I ended up, I, I, I gave it to a production assistant who's now a senior senior manager at Discovery, um, and he sent it to his dad who knew somebody at Military Channel, and she agreed to meet with me as a favor to him. And, you know, that's kind of how the ball got started rolling forward finally. So you, you go through the whole process of producing the documentary, and then you also get to air it on the Military Channel, mm-hmm. which is a subset of discovery mm-hmm. that's correct right mm-hmm. i saw you on facebook on a bunch of different outlets what was that like going with your grandfather to to the cnn yep i was on cnn a couple times i was on with lester holt nightly news a bunch of different radio stations we did also the morning talk show run it's like the today show and that sort of thing right but 
it's in studio. So what me and my grandpa did was we showed up in the morning at like 4.15. They do your hair and makeup. They give you a list of all the shows you're going to start doing from the East Coast through to Hawaii. And you sit there and you do 25 interviews in a row where they're like, hey, you know, and jumping to Dallas, Texas, where we have Jim Lavelle, the man handcuffed to Lee Harvey Oswald and his granddaughter, Kate Grinling. So all the affiliates. Yeah. So all the affiliates. And it was, yeah. you know, um, it was crazy. I mean, it was really it was really great. And I loved every second of that because I got to live in Dallas. I was living with my grandparents for two months doing the media blitz before the premiere. And that was probably the most special time. From the perspective of maybe someone that wants to get into television and, and talk a little bit about what they might be walking into. What I love about TV is that it's it changes a lot. So you have some of the, you definitely have a lot of the similar responsibilities, but the content's always changing. The people you work with are always changing. You have to be adaptable. Um, you have to be on your toes and very much aware of the surroundings. But so like a typical day on on a show is or a, a typical experience would be you have you know, three weeks for pre-production um, and you figure out your characters, your story, what the client wants, how you're actually going to achieve it, get everything lined up, you know, releases, permits and all of that. And then you actually go out into the field and you shoot and that's when your true 12 hour to 16 hour days kick in. Um, and usually on a, like a six day work week. And that's when you're trying to, with reality TV at least, you're trying to get the story you want to achieve told by the characters who may or may not be aligned with that story or things may not unfold the way you thought they were going to when you're in there. So you have to be very aware of what story are you getting? Do you have all the pieces and the connective tissue and the transitions to get from point A to point B to point C so that the audience member who knows nothing about the story you're trying to tell can follow it and is intrigued? You're also responsible to get the editor what they need which can be a contentious relationship sometimes. <laughs> right. So post-production is has the beauty of hindsight. They can say like, oh, well, how'd you not see this? Or why didn't you get this? And it's like, um, you know, I don't know, because I was standing in a horde that was over my head and I didn't realize that, you know, this dynamic was. But that's where what I was saying in the beginning of the conversation really comes into play. Like if you've worked as an editor, even if you're, you know, you're never hired as it, but if you know what it, if you tried editing a few projects or with audio or you've worked with cameras, then you kind of know what everyone on your team needs. And as a producer, like if you don't know what everything on your, everyone on your team needs and you don't have experience with it yourself, it's hard to always be ahead of the game. And it's easier, easier for people to Monday morning quarterback you. The lesson I had to learn is I like to do everything myself. And you really can't with this process. It's it's really is requires a lot of people. And the one time that was really real for me was I was working on this shoot and I was shooting some kind of B-roll of like memorabilia. The producer looked at me. I was I was kind of engrossed in things that were laid out on the bed. And I was totally missing the fact that the one character was breaking down and crying and having a really the moment that you want to capture that's going to kind of tie everything together was happening over the other side of the room. <laughs> Had I been producing and shooting myself, I never would have even noticed it. Right. I definitely, I mean, it takes a team. There's, there's no doubt about it. I, you know, gosh, I mean, for me, the most recent example of that, and there are thousands of when I've been so grateful for 
the team members I have from an AP to PA, my DP, your audio, and my producer, you know, the writers, you know, weighing in when they get, you know, ship footage from the day before. It's like you want to ask as many as people for their input while you're filming because there's really no going back after that. So while you're in it, like you have to have a good team. But my biggest thing was I was shooting a show recently about addicts because I was shooting and producing. And so was my partner as a two man team. And we were doing audio and media management. We were so we had tunnel vision with the camera. And finally, both of us looked up at one point and we were like, we are in a really unsafe situation right now. You know what I mean? And so it's like you do get tunnel vision, whether it's your B-roll or the environment you're in or, you know, missing a character's moment. Like you want people there who have your back. Your back. My boss, uh, I've worked with him for five years now, and he, he's been like the biggest supporter, uh, you know, of my career. He always uh, talks about loyalty as being the number one thing. Because if, if you don't have a team that's backing you up and looking out for you, then you're most likely going to drop the ball multiple times. So we're almost out of time. I want to touch on your new independent documentary project that you talked to me a little bit about the last time you were in town. But can you? I was approached um, by Harry Lee, who I went to middle school with, and he said, you know, he was a headmaster at a school in Somalia run by a Wall Street prodigy who had basically closed his quarter of a billion dollar hedge fund in New York and built a school in Somalia, um, in Somaliland. And Harry wanted to do, Harry was doing a documentary about uh, about the school. Wanted some advice. He was sending me some footage he had and some trailers and, and how, you know, what should he do next? And I would answer his emails maybe once every two weeks or once a month. And then all of a sudden I got really engrossed and it was like every day we were talking and then then we wanted to meet up, and then he was going on this shoot, and I was like, yes, I, I want to go with you. Uh, the documentary is called Abarso, and that is the name of a school in Somaliland. And it is sending kids to school, um, or it is sending its students, its Somali students, to study in the U.S. for the first time in 30 years. Um, Somaliland is a, the number one, has been the number one failed state in the world for six of the seven last years. And the fact that these kids are getting opportunities that no one else is getting to go study in the U.S. on full rides is pretty remarkable. And our documentary tells the story of their journey from living on less than $2 a day. Somaliland itself is peaceful, but you have the pirates to the east. You have Al-Shabaab in Mogadishu. You have Al-Qaeda right in Yemen. I mean, all of their borders are surrounded by some of the most cruel violence. And yet they're going to school. And how is that being done? And what is, what is it like if they get in and don't get in? Um, and so that's we've followed them for a year now, just over a year. And so that's, that's their story of about six or seven students. That's awesome. That sounds really great. Where is it now in production? Is it post-production? or? Mm-hmm. So we've finished all of production, and we're in that phase where we're looking to either um, – we've cut a trailer and a longer sizzle, a 20-minute, 10-minute sizzle, I think, and um, we are shopping it around. So now I'm back to that networking, and it's so hard. Um, it's asking people to meet with you and believe in your project and believe in you and, and think about ways creatively that it could fit into their world. So their distribution company, their network, uh, 
what other contacts they might have that would be a good fit for this documentary, and then securing the funding to finish editing it. And then, you know, that's a whole new bag. Thinking about people coming out of college now, wanting to get into media, television, documentary, what advice generally would you have for them? My number one advice for people coming out of college would be, one, create a community like Arlington Independent Media has here. Look for opportunities that you can join people that are willing to have you work with them on projects, learn how to collaborate. My number one thing, though, uh, probably before that would be to take as many courses as possible. If you're still in college and you have, especially if your parents are paying for it and you have opportunity. What types of courses? uh, Editing and graphic design. Um, Those are going to be the number two things that people need to learn because um, it's what we call predator. You have to be able to produce and edit. So producer plus editor, predator. And you have got to have those technical skills. I mean, there's just, because there's so much content and the same amount of money, people are making us do um, more with less. I knew that at 25 that I was behind the curve since I was 18 because I didn't take any of those classes. Writing, writing helps. A strong writer, writer will really help you understand story. And last, I would say from my own personal experience is you just, you can't be afraid when I was shopping around Oswald, I or when I was shopping around the documentary called Capturing Oswald, I sent it to HBO, and I sent a signed photo by my grandpa to Sheila Nevins, the head of HBO programming, and she actually had her vice president call me back. And I spaced. I was too scared. I was too scared mm. to talk to him. Oh. So it was that's my biggest regret ever um, is that I did have a phone call with him. He reached out to me and said, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to help. Let's set up a call. It was the vice, her vice president. Um, and I talked to him for 25 minutes. He said, send me your stuff. And I never, ever emailed him. I never sent him anything. And I'm only sharing that. It's embarrassing, but I'm only sharing that because I was scared. I was really scared. I didn't have the confidence of what I had. And I was in over my head, and um, it's definitely my biggest regret. So if anybody ever offers you an opportunity, take it. I, it won't, can't hurt, you know? Wow, that's a, that's a really amazing story. Yeah, sort of. Well, well it is. It's a, it's a great thing to, to learn from. But also, I mean, the funny part is we talked this whole me- interview about how tenacious you are, and that's the way I see you. So that's really surprising to learn that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's everyone has their um, insecurities, and HBO just felt too out of reach for me, and I I didn't know what I was doing, but I was only comfortable letting certain people be aware of that, and it was it was ego, you know. In a lot of ways, it was a lot of ego. It was like I wasn't sure what even to tell this person because I didn't know what I was doing and what I find is that if you're sort of honest about it in a way that allows people to know that you're not coming to them because you think you're great but because you're asking for help they're a lot more receptive to you and he knew I was asking for help but yet I still was scared wow well thanks for doing this yeah no problem it was great talking to you that was my conversation with Kate Grinling. It was recorded at Arlington Independent Media. For more on the Abarso Project, tune in next week where we'll have Harry Lee and Ben Powell, Kate's other film partners. Make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to Media on the Radio. 
or listen on mixcloud.com or arlingtonmedia.org and will hopefully soon be on WERA 96.7 Arlington Radio. Follow me on facebook.com backslash media on the radio or join the conversation on Twitter at media on radio. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening.